Welcome to the Global Marketing Show, the podcast for all things international business. I'm your host, Wendy Pease, president of Rapport International and a translation expert. Come along with me today as we talk to an expert in the global marketing world about facing their biggest fears, hearing about mistakes they made or saw, discussing best practices, and sharing fun travel language and culture stories. Hello, listeners. Thank you for joining another episode of the Global Marketing Show podcast. You know, it's really interesting. After I published my book, The Language of Global Marketing, some leaders of ad agencies read it and they said to me, you know, I never thought about it. We could be a global company too. And so this episode is going to really enlighten you about how, yes, a global ad agency of every size should be talking to their clients about the opportunities of going global. We've got a really interesting guest today. His name is Omar Menashe, and he is an owner of an ad agency. He's a digital marketing professional with over 20 years of experience. He's founder of a leading digital marketing agency that's influencing over $20 million a year in ad spend. He's created global go-to-marketing blueprints, digital growth strategies, and data analysis frameworks for everything from funded startups, Fortune 500 enterprises, and everything in between. So Omar, welcome to the Global Marketing Show. I'm so happy to have you here. Thank you, Wendy. I am also super happy to be here. Thank you for having me. So you started your company in Israel, right? That is correct. I have heard through all my international connections that if you start a company in Israel, you think global from the start. Would you agree with that? I, I, I definitely agree with that. I think that comes with being such a tiny country. If you want to achieve any sort of success at scale, you have to think outside the borders of Israel. We do a lot of things really well. R&D, we're very technical and technological. But what we don't have, and there's nothing we can do about it, is a lot of people in Israel. So the market is inherently just small physically. Where would a company from or a startup or a company in Israel think about going first? Well, the, the immediate suspect is always the United States for two reasons. One, it's generally the most interesting market. It might not have the most, the country with the most people in it. India, China are larger, of course, but the amount of capital that the U.S. has is, is unmatched, right? So that's, uh, that's one thing. And second, Israelis speak English from a very young age. And so when we're ready to expand, we can already communicate with our target audience, whereas we, we don't speak Mandarin or you know, any of the other languages generally. So that, that is another hurdle we would have to pass if we did want to seriously infiltrate uh, a different country. Okay, yeah, that's really interesting. So it's language and capital. So it's a, a good market going there. What about, like, what other countries do Israeli companies usually go into? So Europe is geographically, and so obviously the UK is a target a lot of times. From the UK, we can kind of go to the rest of Western Europe. So France, 
Spain sometimes, even though, again, from a capital perspective, they're a little less attractive. Germany, of course. And then as a second step, sometimes Eastern Europe. Of course, I'm speaking very broadly. It really depends on what your solution or product is. And that also dictates what your target audience might be. So recently you moved over to the United States and you've got clients here. Have you noticed a difference with how U.S. companies think about going global? Of course. I think the main difference is that they don't think about going global until much, much, much later than companies from Israel. Generally at the enterprise stage even, it's, it's pretty rare to meet an American-founded and based startup saying, hey, we'd like to, to target Southeast Asia unless there's a very good reason for it. So I think that's, that's probably the biggest difference. And how do, how do you see that? I mean, you, you've come from two opposite sides in your work. Well, I think in that sense, American startup founders or, or even you know, regular business owners, they're lucky in, in the, from the aspect of, of where they were born and, and where they get their soft-ish start. It's never easy to start a business. It's much harder to start a startup, of course. But at least what they have going for them is that they were born in the right country. So, to speak. so that's one thing they don't have to worry about. Whereas a lot of times, and that's not unique to Israel, it could be from any small-ish European country, they all know that they're targeting the United States. There are many accelerators, part of which uh, a mentor app, where their whole reason of being is to guide European-based companies to market penetration in the U.S. So that's always a goal for any company that's not U.S.-based, really. And what would your advice be? So, yeah, so U.S. companies are leaders are lucky that they're born in the United States. Do you think it's an advantage for them to just stay in the country or is it an advantage to think global? I think before you start thinking about expanding outside the box, you should probably leverage everything the box has to offer you, right? So that's why it's rare from my experience to see U.S. companies target global expansion very quickly. So they would after they raise a certain round or when they want for a specific business reason to expand globally, but it's never the first thing in the agenda. Whereas for a lot of other companies that come from other countries, it definitely is. A lot of times, and, and I'll speak from the startup perspective, startup founders perspective in, in an Israeli environment, a lot of times when you raise capital, your investors would prefer that you don't actually get any traction in Israel because that's toxic to the startup. You start getting traction in Israel, you start getting product requests, you start building your product that becomes more geared towards the Israeli market. And that actually moves you away from the, the actual market that those folks have invested you for going after, which is the US market. So it's not uncommon to, to, for investment vehicles to shy away from investing in Israeli startups or companies if they have too much traction in the Israeli market. It's fascinating to me. So they don't want to do it in the home market. They want you to create something that you can sell in a completely different market. They want you to be a unicorn and you can't be a unicorn in Israel, no matter how you flip it. Yes, the statistics that come out from the federal government do show that the companies in the U.S. that export have on average 20% higher revenues than their domestic counterparts. They're 30% more likely to stay in business. They pay higher wages and they're more stable. 
At what point in a company do you think it is good for them to start thinking about global? Well, it's really a matter of where you are in your roadmap and what your client acquisition slash growth trajectory looks like. If you've realized that you have now covered a lot of your market in the US, sure, you need more people, you need more clients, by all means, expand globally. But a lot of times, the lower hanging fruit is to continue expanding domestically, <clears throat> simply because it's easier, quicker, cheaper, and much more lucrative. So tell me about the story of how you started your digital marketing agency in Israel and how you ended up expanding. So I, I have always been a nerd. From a very young age, I think I started learning programming at the age of probably 10. My father sent me to the, one of those uh, children's classes back then. And I found, I fell in love with, I think I always had it, computers, computer games, what you can do in computers. So as I grew older, I became what some people would call today a hacker, but not really. I was a kid. I was running various scripts I found online and tried to get things uh, to happen with that. So one of the things I can talk about publicly is how I managed to get access to servers for universities and install game servers for the games we were playing in high school back then. So I was actually hosting the game server on university servers. So, <laughs> and, and back then the, the internet connection was not good enough to do that at home, which is why we needed this external help. And uh, to this day, I thank them for their... Uh... Once I grew up a little bit, I became obviously an adult and I did things that would be considered more e-commerce. So I did eBay and Amazon 15 years ago, 14 years ago, sold various, both virtual products and physical products. And then I had to decide what I want to do my degrees in. And in Israel, it's not exactly the same way it is in the, in the U.S. You can go do your law degree immediately. And, you know, being uh, Israeli and Jewish, my grandfather wants nothing but lawyers in the family. And so I was uh, promptly shipped off to law school. And I combined that with a business degree. And four years later, I uh, emerged a potential lawyer. Afterwards, I had to do a year of internship and then the bar exam, which I passed. And today I am a lawyer. I have never practiced a single day in my life. A single day after I passed the bar, I started my first company, which was an mobile app development firm that also did courses. And so very quickly, we took over uh, the mobile education portion of one of Israel's largest technical colleges. And I, I was leading these courses, how to develop for iPhone, how to develop for Android, all throughout the country. I think we had about 10 courses simultaneously at any given moment. Very quickly, uh, back then, mobile development was not as common and, and easy. And so we got pretty big ticket clients back then. Uh, we worked with banks. I was, I was 24, 25 years old. So that was a, a big thing for me. We worked with banks, big companies, public companies, and it was very interesting. And I ended up selling that company. After I sold the, the development company, I created the Emojo, which is the digital marketing agency that I'm part of today. And Emojo is a full scale digital marketing performance agency. We have a studio in-house. We produce videos, landing pages, websites, but we're most proud of our work in go-to-market and performance strategy and implementation. 
So we do a lot of paid search, paid social, SEO, automations of all kinds, content marketing. And that was 10 years ago that I started that company. Now, being Israeli, we're traveling people. So there are Israelis everywhere in the world. And it's very easy for Israelis to work with other Israelis. And so we found ourselves getting a lot of leads, a lot of business interest from a CMO who is Israeli, but works in a Swedish company in Sweden. And just like that, we had our first Swedish client. Uh, the same happened in Sydney, in Australia, the same happened in Germany, the same happened here in New York. And then five years in, we realized basically what I said in the beginning. Israel is a small market. We became pretty known in Israel. We were already working with public companies in Israel, but it, it, there's a glass ceiling that is very hard to break if you stay local. And so we decided to actively pursue international business development. At the same time, we had two major client hubs. So one is Sydney, Australia. One was in New York, the East Coast. And Sydney is a way longer flight from Israel. So I started flying to New York. I used to come here every month, a month and a half. I would spend seven to 10 days here. I would have meetings from the morning until night. I would come home exhausted, but we, it worked. I mean, the business kept growing here. We got more and more clients. We had clients refer us to other people. I met a ton of super interesting people uh, and definitely built a, a real network here that today is, is priceless. And that's what I've done for about five years. And at that point, my son was born. And my wife did not appreciate let it. Me let me stop you there before we get into this really interesting personal story. Sure. So you started it about 10 years ago. And for the first five years, you really did focus on Israel then. We focused on Israel and we had these kind of drips of international clients coming just because we were known in Israel and the decision makers were Israeli in their respective countries. Okay. And so then you noticed that you had, so that was kind of a trigger is that you noticed you were kind of flooding the market or hitting the glass ceiling, but then you also were paying attention to where customers were coming in from. Of course. I think that the main revelation that we've had is that when we get paid in dollars or in euros, even after converting it to, to Israeli shekels, it's still worth five times the amount. And so it became very attractive for us to get more and more international clients and kind of start pivoting away from targeting the Israeli market. Okay. And so you work, you know, the two main ones were Sydney and New York, where they both speak English, you know, that might be a little bit different and way bigger accent difference. But you also mentioned Sweden. What other countries were you picking up clients from? So we had uh, Costa Rica. We had one in Mexico. We had Sweden. We had Germany. We had France, of course. We had Spain. Uh, we had one in Brazil and Australia. I think these are might have missed a country or two, but it was always very sporadic. It was one person in Brazil, one person in Costa Rica. And were your, how did you deal with the language issues? So they, they would all speak English to us, mostly. My mother is French, and so I speak French, and that helped with the French clients. But we also had native French speakers in the office in Israel. Okay, so your clients spoke English, but then they were asking you to do marketing that would have been in other languages. Correct. And that's something that we had to hire outside assistance for, for, the, uh, for the language part of it. 
So who did you hire or what did you do? Again, we're lucky that we were Israeli in that respect because Israel has a huge community of, of Olim Chadashim, which is the definition for people who are Jewish, who are allowed by law to receive citizenship in Israel. And a lot of them come to Israel to live. And so in Israel, you find people who were born in pretty much any country in the world, and they are constantly looking for employment because it's sometimes a little harder for them to find jobs uh, than native Israelis. And so these translation jobs or digital marketing jobs were great for them because it, it played to, to their strength and it really helped us. We needed someone who is native Brazilian, for example. So they spoke, so they spoke English too? Yeah, generally, I, I mean, we couldn't work with them if they didn't also speak either English or Hebrew so we can communicate with them. But yeah, generally anyone who, who makes Aliyah, who, who relocates to Israel would know their native tongue plus English. Okay, okay, because that's what I was trying to figure out, whether you were talking to them in Hebrew or English, because you're not talking to them in Portuguese or Spanish Correct. or French. Yeah, so a lot of the people spoke English too, because they had to understand what your client needed in market. Yes, but again, if they found themselves in Israel, I mean, forget the employment part. They have to live in a country nobody speaks Portuguese and they would have to speak English to get by. So I think that's a pre-qualifier. They wouldn't have come if they didn't speak at least basic English. And how did you find the people then? There are, so I actually own the largest group on Facebook for international jobs. So that makes it very easy for us to post posts and recruit people. But there are, there are many websites like similar to Indeed here in the States uh, where you can just post a position and you will get a ton of uh, CVs. Okay, so you just hire individuals and bring them into your company or have them work as a subcontractor to do translation? Exactly, on a per project basis if we need them. Now, I should probably say that since we've kind of put our focus on the US, we are much less geared towards taking new projects from random countries uh, as one-offs. Okay, which is a good global marketing strategy is, is that you're not taking things from anywhere. You've defined your target market as to where you want to be. Correct. I think focus is extremely important. And I think that's even in global marketing, that really does bring success. You have to have a certain differentiator. So what about the agencies that are in the U.S. that could be doing global marketing? What do you think about them? So I think that is not very different from any company in the U.S. that could be expanding globally. As an agent, as someone who, who owns an agency, I can't imagine any reason why a U.S.-based agency would want to expand globally. The, the market here is infinite, um, and it's a much heavier lift to work with clients in a different time zone, in a different that, that have a different mentality, and that's something that we had. I, I mean, personally, I had... Uh, call the challenges or, or difficulties kind of align myself with the American mentality of doing business. It's very different from doing business in Israel. In what ways? Well, Israelis are very direct. So if you're sitting across the table with someone and you tell them, hi, I think I can help you with A, B, and C, and it's going to cost you D, they will tell you if they think D is worth A, B, and C, or if they're ready to engage or not. And this is a story I, I tell quite often. The first time I came to, the, I had a bunch of meetings lined up. Somehow I managed to, to get myself a meeting in a Fortune 1000 company, cybersecurity. And I was sitting 
across the table from you know three people in their marketing division. And I've been pitching and I was showing them graphs and their analytics and, and opportunities of where I think we can help. And at the time, it seemed to me like they were super into it. They were like, oh yeah, that's very interesting. That, that's, that's so cool. That's great. That... And I never heard from them again. I reached out. They never answered my emails. And that had to happen to me a couple more times before I understood that the feedback you get face-to-face in these meetings doesn't mean a lot. I mean, the closing rate for new clients that I have in the U.S. is similar to the closing rate I have in Israel. But whereas the Israelis will tell me if it doesn't fit, it's not a fit, great. We know not to speak to each other again because it's just not a fit. In the U.S., it's much more polite. And Mm -hmm. I learned to take it for what it is. It, It creates a nice atmosphere. And then either it works or it doesn't work. Either they need it or they don't need it. But it's a very, it's hard to explain as an outsider. It's very correct. It's very, I think polite is, is the best word, maybe. You're talking about what's known as ghosting. Uh, is yeah. They have a very nice conversation with you. You enjoy, you think things went well, and then they just disappear. That's exactly what I'm talking probably, about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which I guess you could argue is polite. They don't want to hurt feelings. But on the other hand, it's a lot harder to deal with than somebody telling you right where you stand. True, and I was confused in the beginning, but I take it for what it is now. That's that's how they do business, and I'm I'm a guest here, so that's how I have to do business. And today, it, it really doesn't bother me anymore. I mean, I now I understand the rules of the game better than I did before. So I know that this is the framework. That's how we do things, and you know, that's how things happen. That's a very common statement from people who do international business: is that you have to understand the rules of the game in the country, and there is a learning curve of understanding that because you have to step outside of your own expectations. A hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so what about your clients? Do you talk to them about going global? I mean, I see so many agencies that are working with companies that could could have phenomenal growth by going international. So we're actually starting to attract, and that that happens organically and naturally, we're starting to attract Israeli companies who come to us because they want to grow into the U.S. Now, for some of our clients, it's irrelevant. We work with uh, law firms, for example, in Israel, and and they, they will not and cannot expand into the U.S., so it's not a relevant proposal. But for a lot of our clients today, they come knowing that they're test running in Israel, but if it works, we can make them a global brand. And we have done so many times. That's fascinating. So that's the angle that U.S. companies could really take ad agencies is making connections with companies in other countries that want to come into the United States. Of course. And that's, that's, that's a- actually very, very common. A lot of accelerators that, that come from enterprises like the Intel program, like the Microsoft program, they support startups and again, I know that I'm very Israel specific, but that's just the market I know best. Uh, Israel is very known for R&D. Startups start in Israel, mm-hmm. but then they need funding. They need the connections. They need the enterprise sales process to be able to actually grow, which is why these uh, huge enterprises like Intel, like Microsoft, like Oracle have programs in Israel to catch those startups right as they're starting up, scooping them up into their internal programs and kind of groom them until they're ready to penetrate the U.S. market. 
which is it, it, it's so interesting because you're you're coming from Israel and you understand the potential of the U.S. market. Now, the U.S. imports so many products and services that we have empty container ships going out all the time. And so the federal government offers free money and free consulting to help companies that want to export. So it's really interesting to get your perspective on how hot it is to come into the United States. hundred percent. I mean, yes, that's, and I think it meets both countries at exactly the point where their needs are both met. The, I believe that the biggest export industry for Israel is actually startups making exits and getting sold to American companies or, or IPOing or stuff like that. Um, and so that's, I mean, Israel needs that. That's a, that's a part of our, uh, of our budget. Whereas the U.S. as a very large country with a lot of capital needs these agile, dynamic, quick movers, the, the Israeli startups in this example, to kind of disrupt a lot of the things that happen in the U.S. And I mean, I, I don't have to tell you so many products that every American knows originated in Israel. Oh, there's huge numbers. I, you know, when I hear a lot about it of life sciences companies, you know, medical device and biotech, there's a ton technology that come out of Israel. Mm -hmm. So it makes a lot of sense. And that's Israel's just, or Israeli leaders are just geared to opening in other countries. And so companies in the United States, what you're talking about is this very full opportunity here, yet the balance of trade is so far off that's why there's all these people that'll help American companies. And plus, there's, you know, they become stronger, like I said before. But I want to go back to your personal story. You had talked about, you know, how much how you were doing traveling, coming into the United States, building the market here, and then you had a baby. And I so did have a baby. And that was two years ago now. But when Adam, my son, was born, my wife made it very clear to me that the lifestyle that I had before no longer works within the, the framework of a husband and wife and a child. And so we had to decide what we're going to do. Either I stop traveling so much or we simply move here. Now, at that time, we've had crazy momentum with new clients. Uh, and had I decided to stop traveling and kind of put these, uh, this uh, U.S. expansion on the back burner, I don't think we would have been where we are. I, I know we would not have been where we are today. And it would have been, you know, taking everything I've worked for for the past four or five years and, and putting it in the bin, basically. And so we didn't want to do that. And honestly, living in the U.S. is not so bad. It's, <laughs> it's okay. And we decided to, to you know, make the, make the leap to move here. And that decision was made in December of 2019. COVID was... A whisper in small articles in various newspapers, nothing to worry about back then. But the move-in date, the relocation date, was I was supposed to come on March of March 17th of 2021. And my wife was going to come with our son a week later after I've kind of organized everything. And I can tell you, and you probably remember, that March 17th was full-blown pandemic panic. Nobody knew anything, but everybody knew that the world was going to end. And so the week before, between the 10th and the 17th, we had a lot of conversations, both between her and myself, as well as with other people. What do we do? 
do we go through with this? Do we say, you know, F it, let everything burn, we'll buy new stuff? Because everything was already in containers on its way to the US. We already gave up the apartment in Tel Aviv. We already took an apartment in the Upper West Side here in New York, sight unseen. So it was very inconvenient to, to pull the plug at that point. But I mean, obviously there, there were bigger concerns and we, I can honestly say today that it was really, we decided to make the move evidently, but it was 51, 49. It would have just as easily gone the other way. In retrospect, best decision of my entire life. And I'm really glad we did it, but things were pretty dicey there in the beginning. And the funny thing is that Israel was always about two weeks ahead of New York in terms of the pandemic and how it was and how people reacted. And so when I came, I came gloved up, masked up, super kind of protected. And I remember walking uh, around the Upper West Side and I was seeing people and they were like, they were obviously completely unprotected. And they were looking at me as if I was the crazy one. And then two weeks later, they all joined me in the craziness. So that was, uh, that was fair. Right. What a, what a time to come into the United States. With a five-month-old baby. That was, um, I, I don't recommend it. No, no. Well, hopefully we won't have to go through this again or we'll figure out a better way. Yeah, so I'm curious. So you're an Israeli national. We've got listeners from over 40 countries. How did you go through the process of being able to move into the United States? So we, because I had been going back and forth and growing the business internationally, specifically with U.S. companies, the, there's an option for a visa that's called the E-1 visa, and that's a visa for international trade. So if you can show that you've been doing significant trade with U.S. companies, you are allowed to get that visa and live here and your spouse can work and it's very, very key. How long did but, it take you to get from application until getting the visa? So it took us about six months from the moment we landed here because of COVID. Uh, everything, the embassies were closed. Uh, everything was uh, backlogged. I think it generally takes, I don't know how much it takes now, but it should take uh, for, for pre-pandemic uh, periods, three to four months, I think it was. But we came in, my, my wife is actually, was a, a famous reporter in France. And so she had an I visa, which is a journalist visa where she can just come and go pretty much as she pleases. So that's what we arrived on. I as her uh, spouse, plus one, of course. And then once we got the E1, we switch and now she's on my E1. Okay, that's so interesting because I don't think we talk to a lot of people to find out how they came in. And there, so there are ways to do it. Um, For sure. That are not that difficult. I've heard the other way to do it is to buy a business and then you can get, <laughs> come into the United States, but that does take some capital. But that's, that's actually an E2. Yeah. That's the E2. Okay, good. So I want to go back to the translation you were doing in the hiring the people because you're heavy duty into marketing. When you had to create content in languages, were you creating it in English and then you'd have the people translate it directly? And how did you handle cultural adaptation? Yes. So we did exactly that. We created it in English or in Hebrew, depending on what the other language of the, pers- the person spoke. But we were 100% counting on that person to make the cultural adaptation. 
which is why we insisted on not just hiring a person who spoke Spanish because they watched a lot of TV in Spanish, we insisted on hiring a person who is native from the relevant country, Spain, Argentina, whatever. And that was very, very important for us. Of course, before anything went live, we ran it by the client and the client could point out any gaps or, or you know, requests for amendments and, and things like that. Oh, okay. And what mistakes or growing pains did you see with clients that were trying to to market? Oh, so many. <laughs> um, so the question is about companies outside of the U.S. trying to penetrate the U.S. market. That or, you know, any of the global marketing that you were doing, because you mentioned a bunch of other countries that you've worked with. Right. And I think actually my answer is going to be uh, the same because it's, it's always the same problem. They assume that things are in the target country as they are in the origin country. So if they come from Israel, they try to market to Germans or Swedes or Americans the way they would market to Israelis. And, and that just doesn't work. The, everything is different. The creative is so much different. The, the audiences that you're targeting a lot of times is different, are different. That's, that's the biggest issue. If you don't know your target audience and you don't do deep market research, which was, by the way, one of our big challenges in, this, in these international projects. We needed to actually know the audience and we would not be okay with running campaigns just like, hey, you know, guys, you run campaigns, so just do this campaign for, for parents and it'll be all right. It's not going to be all right and it wasn't all right because if we don't understand how to speak to parents in Belgium, then it's not going to work. So I think that's the challenge number one. Challenge number two is a little more technical, I'd say, or tactical, because marketing costs and ad spend is vastly different across different countries. Depends on a lot of things, depends on the competition, how many other advertisers, the seasonality in that country. So for example, Christmas is expensive to advertise in in most countries of the world, but in some, including Israel, it's not at all because we don't celebrate Christmas. So you need to understand that when you build your marketing budget and build your KPIs and expected results. Because if you don't, and you're not aware that there's a you know, Chinese Singles Day, then you're not going to understand why you're spending more on ad spend and not driving the results that you committed to your clients for. So that's another thing I would suggest looking into. It's so yeah, when you're doing your, your target audience research, you really need to know about holidays and the ad schedules. That's a, that's a really good point. And you yeah. need to know how they behave and what they care about and what influences them because parents in Belgium are not the same as parents in Belarus. Well, you now you got to tell me the difference between the two. <laughs> well, it can be anything from a fresh parent. So this is, this is a topic that, I, that I've been living. But at the end of the day, there are different countries have different ways in which it's accepted to do certain things, right? For example... When do you uh, wean babies from liquid foods and move them into solids? That's the first country to country. So if you're going to market baby food, you should probably know that when you choose the age range of the kids of the parents you're targeting, right? Same with how they look at formula milk versus breast milk, right? There's so many, it's true. They're all parents and they all love their children very much. That, that's all true. But when you get into the, the ins and outs, the, the bits and bites, 
the behavior changes and you need to know those things if you are trying to sell them something. At the end of the day, marketing is psychology. If you don't understand the psychology, you can't make them do what you need them to do. Yeah, that's so true. That's uh, yeah. It just I, I look back to you know my kids are teenagers now, but I look back to the whole uh, like co sleeping and what do they call it when you keep the baby on you all the time? Yeah, I think it's co sleeping. Co sleeping. Yeah, that's at night, and then there's also the day. But my son had a preschool teacher that was from Peru. And I was talking to her about co-sleeping and she started laughing. She's like, yeah, in a lot of other countries, parents co-sleep with their children because they don't have enough bedrooms. <laughs> it was just a very practical thing. She was like, no, put them in their own bed. <laughs> so I always think fondly of Doris was her name. My son learned so much from her. <laughs> so tell us more about your company exactly give us some stories about client successes and what you've done for them well i like to say that our biggest success is a company called Ravello that we did part of their marketing they sold to oracle for half a billion dollars and it wasn't just our marketing their product was okay but that's that's probably the biggest success and the most recent success is a company we do their marketing it's called vault platform it's for hr compliance if you if anything bad happens in the workplace it provides a safe space for you to report that anonymously to the hr department uh, and they recently i believe a month and a half ago raised their uh, Series A, almost $10 million, primarily from Google. And we've done everything in between. I mean, we specialize in taking startups from pre-seed, seed to A to B, uh, and hopefully to a successful exit or an M&A. Okay. And what are, what are you doing for them? Because you do so much in the marketing realm. Correct. So the way it works if you're asking specifically about startups, they know what they need to do to get to the next round. They might need a hockey stick moment. They might need 10,000 paying users. I mean, they know what the metric is that we have to achieve. And mm -hmm. so we work backwards. We find out what the metric is, or we help them define it if they don't know. We do have a lot of experience in that field as well. And we work backwards. So we build a media mix or a plan on how do we get those 10,000 paying users. Could be uh, paid search, paid social, could be SEO. We like the holistic approach where we do several different things, automatic outreach, either on LinkedIn or by email to deciding factors in the target companies. Could be a lot of things, but I think that's part of the value of Emojo, that we are not just an SEO agency or just doing paid social. We look at the big picture and we can build a puzzle where every piece fits perfectly with the other pieces to maximize your chance of reaching that next goal to get to that next stage. Okay. Okay. And so you have lots of tools in your box that you can pull out. So it's not just doing a website, but it's optimizing the website and then driving the pay-per-click to the landing pages that's going to bring the people in if that's Yes, I think there's another advantage that we have is that I myself am, am technical. I'm, I'm a developer, which makes it easy for us to build tools on an ad hoc basis per project. So we can build specific scrapers for specific databases that are only relevant for that one client that just signed up with us. And we tell them that before they sign up is one of the, one of the perks of working with Emojo. So we can always get you better data or do the process itself, the marketing process better because we are half human, half machine. We have a lot of mm. like in-house tools that we've built 
to help us do our job better for our clients. Love that half human and half machine. That's what, you know, so much is going towards now, even in the sales process, you've got to learn how to automate part of that, you know, a good number of parts of that. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. So what kind of clients would you work with? So we, at, I mean, COVID happened and with it, a rise of an infinite amount of e-commerce stores, uh, some of which are very good, some of them became very successful. And so we were, we were kind of pulled in the e-commerce direction. Uh, there was a lot of interest. We do a ton of e-com. So that's definitely one kind of client. Otherwise, uh, startups, both B2C and B2B, uh, were very strong in the technological fields. So that's something we can help a lot with. And uh, enterprise dimension, B2B. Okay, that's good to know. All right. So, you know, I'm going to switch it back to some personal questions now. And I always like to ask my favorite one. What's your favorite foreign word? Wow. Wait, foreign in which language? (laughs) I purposely (laughs) leave that open so you can pick any language you want. (laughs) Well, you know what? I am going to say the word is Adam. Adam is the word of my son. It means human in Hebrew. It is the first human from the Bible. Uh, And Adam is my first son. He's also the first grandson in the family. So he's like first in everything. And so the name was very fitting. That is my favorite word for the purpose of this uh, episode. Oh, that's really special about how it has all those deeper meanings. I love that. Thank you. Yeah, and two is such a beautiful age too. I, I didn't. I, it was not terrible twos. It's terrible threes. I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's always it's always something. It's the terrible twos, and then the tremendous threes, and then the formidable fours. There was there was always something. Yeah, there is. There is. But I I just love that age. All right. And how about your favorite vacation? Favorite vacation. I like vacations where I can just tune everything out. We just went to Cancun uh, a week and a half ago. So definitely these kind of vacations, but my absolute favorite was my honeymoon in the Maldives. That was like nothing else I've ever done. Oh, that's great. Tell us a little bit more about it. I've never been there. So it was, uh, so the Maldives is made of a lot of different islands and each island is a resort. So our resort was a, a couples only resort. We didn't have Adam then obviously. And you have this kind of concierge that drives you around the island for anything you need. Your Room is basically a cabana. It's right on the water. It's a huge bed that's facing the window. You have an infinity pool and right after that, the ocean. Uh, You see dolphins in the morning jumping outside your window. Uh, You snorkel. You take the stairs right down your cabana. It's a private terrace thing. You see all sorts of, you know, marine wildlife. Uh, We did scuba diving. We did water sports. We did, I mean, it was just Unbelievable. It's the most resting vacation I've ever had. I actually slept better there than anywhere else in the world. Oh, that sounds fantastic. And I was waiting to hear if you went scuba diving because I've heard that's a good place to dive. I'm a, I'm a big scuba diver. So I try to scuba dive when I go to these places. It was great. Yes, I'm headed to Lou Key soon. Down oh, nice. in Florida Keys. It's supposed to be a top 10 place to dive. So do you, do you dive? Oh, yeah. No. All right. Yeah. So tell me, tell me how it was afterwards. I've never been okay. there. I will. It's uh, my son's just getting certified. So it'll be his first dive trip. Nice. So, okay. So back to you though. 
How about a, a crazy or a memorable cross-cultural experience you've had? I mean, relocating in the middle of a pandemic with a fighter role doesn't count. Yeah, I think that absolutely <laughs> does count. <laughs> that was pretty crazy. Yeah, yeah, that's good. And how about final recommendations for anybody that is interested in doing global marketing? The first step is always hardest. Uh, when I decided to, to start flying out here, I knew nobody in New York. I reached out to all my network, both close and semi-close, and just asked them to Introduce me to people in New York, no matter what they do, who they are, how old they are, what, like where they're from, doesn't matter. I just want to have coffee with interesting people, set me up. And that's, that's how I started the whole thing. This, this mentality was worth millions of dollars for us today, six years later. And I mean, I was thinking when my partner and I made the decision to, to actively pursue international business development specifically here. Okay, so we've decided to do that. What am I doing now? Like, how, how do we do that? I've, I've always been the biz dev person. So that it was obviously my task and I've never done anything like that. And so that was a, a tall order. And that's what I did. I just reached out to a bunch of people. I came for a week the first time I had 45 meetings. I, you know, I had like 15 minutes. I calculated how long it takes me to get by subway from meeting to minute, meeting to meeting. And I, I knew all the addresses in advance and all that. And if I had just told myself, listen, this is too hard or this is too much work or, or I have no idea how to start, it would have never happened. And nobody knows how to start in the beginning. So you just have to do and you'll see that it just there, there's momentum to it. It is. You really reached out through your networks and just met people. I mean, you did. I mean, that must have been quite the organization to get all that in. And I know we met through EO, which is a global organization. Right. And so did you leverage that network a lot? Not at all. I had only found out about EO after I had arrived in the States. I then found out that there is a chapter in Israel, but I didn't know about that. And the reason why I joined EO to begin with is because I, I was lonely during the pandemic. I was stuck at home with a baby. I knew the power of networking, of organizations, and I was looking for organizations similar to the ones I know in Israel. And I found EO and a few others. I spoke to all of them. EO made the best impression. I've been a member for a little under a year now. And that was also a very, very good decision. I have very good friends in EO. Yeah. So for listeners who don't know what EO is, do you want to tell them about it? EO stands for Entrepreneurs Organization. It's basically a membership organization for business owners who have revenue of over a million dollars a year from all sorts of all kinds, all types of businesses, which creates a very interesting group of people because we're all like-minded individuals. We're all business people. We all understand how businesses work and we care about that, that sort of topics, but we all come from very different worlds at the same time. So uh, we have uh, roofers and tech guys and uh, digital marketing agencies and hospitality people. And it's just, it's just amazing. It's a great support group. It's a great networking group. I get clients from EO. I provide clients to people I met in EO. It's kind of like an instant intimacy facilitator because you know you can trust this person. They've been pre-vetted and they're thinking what you're thinking, kind of. Yeah, that's fantastic. I joined right after the, the world shut down, so I wasn't planning on doing it. But my first you know, year 
over a year was uh, was everything was virtual. But it is, I mean, if anybody is thinking about crossing the borders, you know, you own a company and want to expand globally, EO is a great place to start because just like Omar was talking about is, is he set up a bunch of meetings in one week. You could do that through EO chapters anywhere in the world. Honestly, if I was an EO back then, it would have been way easier for me to do what I did. It's a matter of sending a message in the Slack channel. We have EO members from pretty much every country in the world, really every country in the world. And it would have been so much easier to do this had I had access to the EO network then. Thank you, Omar, so much for uh, being with us today. It was really interesting to hear your story about coming into the United States and the different uh, things that you've done to build your successful business. So thank you. Thank you for having me. I had a lot of fun. Oh, good, good. Yeah, and little listeners, thank you for joining us for this episode of the Global Marketing Show. If you enjoyed it or learned something today, make sure to follow us and maybe forward it on to an ad agency that you might know that wants to hear his story about coming into the United States because a lot of the suggestions or experiences that he had could certainly be used for expanding to other places. So appreciate you tuning in and uh, we'll talk to you next time. That's a wrap for this session. A big thanks to you for listening to the Global Marketing Show. Hope you had just as much fun as I did. New sessions launch weekly on all places you find podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and of course on our website. If you know someone interested in this topic, please tell them about us. Au revoir for now.